Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to a very special episode of this podcast, and the first of its kind, The Grand Tourist Selects, where we highlight the finest and most intriguing works of art and design from events around the world. On today's episode, sponsored by the Tafoff Art Fair, we're recording live from Maastricht in the Netherlands, where the fair is running until June 30th. Listeners of The Grand Tourist might remember last year's episode on the fair for its online edition. This year, it's back in person and filled with dozens of booths from galleries all over the world, selling art from ancient Egyptian busts and illuminated manuscripts to Renaissance paintings and Art Deco furniture. As a part of The Grand Tourist Selects, we're going to introduce you to five exceptional pieces as told by the dealers representing them. And if you want to follow along, you can find images of the pieces on my Instagram at Dan Rubenstein or at The Grand Tourist Podcast. We'll discover how a pair of armchairs were once owned by a 20th century master of design, how a statuette from South Sudan catches every collector's eye, how a silver cup was given as a prize for a shooting contest, and how a massive painting from 1675 was discovered in a Venetian palazzo. But first, we're speaking with Christopher Bishop, a New York dealer who found a long-lost treasure at a Massachusetts auction house. Originally estimated at just $300 or so, it turned out to be an original Jan Lievens drawing, a portrait of an important historic figure in Dutch history, Martin Tromp, commander of the Dutch naval fleet. The famous, highly reproduced image was printed dozens of times, and even made into stamps during World War II. I wanted to ask Christopher how such a discovery was received at Tafoff on its home turf in the Netherlands. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm quite welcome. How is the uh, fair going for you so far? It's great. We've got a, a lot of good press and a lot of attention on the uh, Levens drawing, the portrait of Admiral Trump. Yes, it's actually everyone's talking about <laughs> talking about it, and it seems to be a big um, hit. So, for this edition at TAFE Off, you have something like super special that you are presenting. Um, this Jan Levens that was discovered at an auction, somewhat um, mysteriously. And can you? Tell me a little bit about that story sure. and how you came across it. Sure. Um, the drawing popped up at a very small sale in uh, Marion, Massachusetts, which is just off the Cape. And I had about three days to think about it and to go up there and uh, look at the drawing. Um, and it was a tricky case in the sense that the drawing was laid down and I had to be careful that this drawing was, in fact, preparatory for the print by Van Dalen and not after the print. Uh, and I had several clues that this was the original drawing one of which was the collector's mark in the lower right-hand corner, which connected the drawing to a collection in England formed in the late 19th century, the collection of William Mayer. And this collection was presented to the British Library for possible purchase in 1874, shortly before the death of Mayer. So I knew right away that this drawing, which was signed, uh, actually monogrammed by Jan Levens and dated, was the very same drawing that was in London in 1875. So we had some very good indications that this was not a modern fake or a copy, but in fact, the lost drawing that it is. And do you know how it was lost or where, where the trail went cold in this drawing? Yes, we know that the drawing was in the collection of a family in Massachusetts for probably 90 years. 
it was likely acquired by the great-grandfather of the consigner of, of the drawing. And at that time, the family had a lot of business in Europe, and they were traveling over there. And it was probably purchased for decoration by their great-grandfather and put over the mantle. And somewhere along the line, the story of who this was, who the sitter was, who the artist was, was lost in the family. And, and the sitter is the is one of the more fascinating parts of this. He's sort of a Dutch uh, historical hero. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Sure. Um, it's Admiral Trump, who was the uh, admiral of the Dutch Navy at the time of the Second British-Dutch War. And he's a national hero because he was martyred in the cause. So he was killed in 1653 uh, by a sniper, by a British sniper, in the rigging of William Penn's father's ship, actually. And um, he dies early on the day of the Battle of Terhida. And his soldiers on that boat, his sailors, decided to leave his standard flying so that everybody else in the battle would think he was still alive. And the Dutch rallied around him and won the day. And that day goes down in Dutch history as one of the, the most formative days in all, of, in all of Dutch history. And when was he killed? 1653, in August of 1653. And do you know when he sat for this portrait? We don't know exactly when he sat for this portrait. It's likely that since the drawing is dated 1653, that it was within months of his death. And um, I think that one of the most touching and sort of um, interesting aspects of the drawing is that it's almost anticipatory. They almost know that they have to record this man for history because his job was so dangerous that he was almost volunteering for martyrdom. In fact, there were three admirals in a row who, after taking the job, were, were killed soon after. And they all received a sort of hero's burial from, from the Dutch state itself. And there's a watermark um, that's quite special. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, about that and, and what that means in terms of its authenticity? For me, there were really two moments which told me that the drawing was the original drawing beyond uh, the collector's mark. And the first was when I was able to lay the drawing over the print and to realize they're in the same proportion and scale. So in planning the print, they would have used a drawing that was the exact uh, dimensions of the finished print because they were closely collaborating between the printer Van Dalen and the artist Jan Lievens. Uh, the second moment was really when the paper was lifted off the old mount, we were able to see the fool's cap watermark for the first time. And that kind of fool's cap watermark doesn't occur um, before 1635 or after 1660. So you have a very small window for the paper. And because it's the same paper that was used by Rembrandt for his etchings and engravings, and the Dutch um, art historians and state in particular have put so much effort into understanding the dating of Rembrandt's um, corpus, we know more about this paper than just about any paper in the history of of. of of paper. And you call it a fool's cap. Can you explain what that is? So it's actually um, an image of a joker. Um, so a man wearing a pointy hat with, with seven bells on it and, and, a, and a seven pointed collar. Actually, he has several bells on his head, I think four, and a collar where he has, where he has seven points. Um, and um, like any good marketer, paper makers wanted something that was memorable and that had a good brand. And the fool's cap was among, was among the, the premier brands. And it's not surprising that Levens and Rembrandt, who once uh, shared a studio, would have also shared a source of paper. Hmm. Um, and what can you tell me about Jan Levens, who, people who don't know his work? You know, what, what, what sort of place does he have in sort of 
Dutch art history. He's really sort of the other the other, the other half of the story. So you have uh, Rembrandt and Levens who are really during this period reinventing portraiture and focusing on the the individual, focusing on the citizen as opposed to the princes and the kings and the aristocratic portrait tradition and also sort of the downtrodden. So they're both very interested in the elderly, in the religious minorities, um, in those those people who have sort of been overlooked by um, a, a rather tyrannical system that was prevalent in Europe, which is a system of sort of absolute monarchy. So they're they're inventing a modern way of looking, which really privileges um, close close looking scrutiny and a sensitivity to the to the everyday man and really to the citizen, which is uh, really the story of Trump. And how would you describe his style, his sort of artistic style? Um, his, his artistic style is um, full of a kind of detail and luminosity. So he's famous for these very sumptuous paintings, which are detailed. And you see in my drawing the beautiful way in which the, the skin and the hair of Trump are rendered in this very soft sort of black chalk line. And in the equivalent painting, you would have um, um, a, a kind of luminosity for which the Leiden School was quite famous. And... You know, this is the second day of the fair. So what has the reaction been like for collectors coming through? Like, what has that interest been like? Uh, it's been it's been great. It's been one of surprise and, and fascination. Um, for the Dutch people, this is like coming to be able to see face-to-face a George Washington or an Admiral Nelson. It's really a touchstone of Dutch culture and something that they're taught about early in elementary school. You know, this story of the beginning of the modern Dutch state and of this hero who really chose to lay down his life so that the Dutch could be what they are today. And the engraving is also used on uh, a medal, I believe? Yes. So the publisher of the medal, um, the publisher of the print, sorry, is a, an artist by the name of Wouter Muller, who was actually a, a silversmith. So he made a commemorative medal of Trump in 1653, and I have that medal on the stand here um, on my booth. And it was a very close collaboration. So the, the connection between engraving and metal making is very close in this period. And Jan Lievens, Van Dalen, and Wouter Müller were a kind of trio who, who worked together to commemorate this hero in real time. There would have been a real time pressure to um, put out this print because what they're trying to do is to rally the Dutch people against the British blockade. They're trying to tell the Dutch people that this man died for you and that it's your civic responsibility to step up and fight the British and make sure that the Dutch people remain a free people. And, you know, one of my last questions is your, your gallery specializes in old master drawings. Um, and to those out there that are, you know, collectors, maybe they collect contemporary art or, um, you know, modern art. Um, what would you say, you know, is it difficult to get into this specific corner of the art world like what is that like for for new collectors yeah i would i would say that um it's helpful to have a little bit of background as to how prints are made or the process or the history of things but really it's um it's a beautiful object like any any other and it's really the beginning of modernity it's it's the moving away from a hierarchical society towards a valuing of the individual towards individual freedom resilience um, democracy. So um, where we see Jan Levens and Rembrandt reinventing art, 
modern art is impossible without without that moment. So people who are really interested in modern art should be interested in in where it comes from and where the genesis really is. And is and it's for a prospective collector, is it is it easy to acquire sort of old master drawings? Or is it you know uh, today in the state of the art world, like is it it's is the inventory out there? It's relatively affordable um, compared to modern contemporary art, I would say. Um, the price points can be quite modest, and there are, as we see with this case, still really important museum quality pieces lurking out there. And it's the dealer's job to find these things and to bring them to the market. And, and Maastricht, Tefoff, is really the premier fair for that in the world. And so on, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, this uh, Jan Lievens, is this a 10 for you in terms of discovery? Uh, yeah, it has all the it has all the elements. It's not only um, a great story about 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 um, resilience and 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 revival and um, a drawing that was lost and found, um, but it's sort of the double whammy in the sense that it's a very important aesthetic object, but also a very important historical document. You know, it's really one of those things which um, is indispensable in Dutch history and telling the story of the Dutch people. So it's special both ways. While most collectors know Tafoff as a fair for antiquities and paintings, 20th century design also appears at the fair by some of the most divine dealers. Next up, I speak with a Paris dealer from Lyon, Alain Marchepal. He literally wrote the book on a lesser-known French Art Deco designer, André Sornet. For Tafoff, his booth is filled with incredible works by the late designer, including two armchairs in mahogany and brass. I wanted to ask Alain about the pieces, why Sornet is such an important figure in design history, and talk about Sornet's patented technique of panels held together with brass nails that not only created a decorative effect, but also lowered the cost during the difficult Depression era. Hello, the name of the gallery is my name, Galerie Alain Marcel Poel. Uh, I live in Lyon. It's very important because Sornet was from Lyon, and the gallery is in Paris. Ah, okay. And what is your title at the gallery founder? You founded the gallery? Uh, uh, I, found, uh, I found the gallery uh, 12 years ago. Paris is the best place for Art Deco furniture, for dealer. Where, where in, in Paris are you based? Yeah, now, at the beginning, I was at um, Rue de Miromenil in, in the 8th, but now... Uh, since uh, six years, I am Rutsen or at uh, 28, so the best place for Art Deco furniture, I think, in Paris. And how would you describe uh, the specialty of your gallery? Uh, the specialty of the gallery is Art Deco furniture and applied uh, object, piece between the two big wars, 1920-1930. And uh, my specialty is André Sornet furniture because I live in Lyon. Uh, my gallery is in Paris. I live in Lyon, and Sornet was the best in Lyon for furniture. So my specialty is André Sornet furniture. So all my booths in uh, Tefaf, Maastricht, all the furniture are Sornet furniture. But I have objects like Ellen Gray, like uh, Rullman, uh, like Coar. But my specialty is André Sornet. And I have very known uh, in the world for the specialist of Sornet furniture. And you describe this era of these greats uh, from, you know, middle or, or, you know, in the interwar period, uh, these designers. What would you, how would you describe 
André Sornet in the context of these other grades? In Art Deco furniture, you have two types of Art Deco. You have a modernist type, like Charot, Sornet, and all the UHM study, like Malay Stevens, Charot, Prouvé also, Charlotte Perriand. And the second is a classic Art Deco, like Ruhlmann, like Prince. And Sornet was the first type, modernist. It's uh, like architecture. The design is very uh, architectural design, and the line is horizontal and vertical line. And so when did you first sort of fall in love with André Sornet to, to, to dedicate a, a big part of your career to his, to his work? Because I live in Lyon, so it's, it's very easy for me. <laughs> I know Sornet very well. I know uh, all the family of Sornet. Uh, I wrote the book uh, 12 years ago with the family for all the painting, for all the drawings of Sornet, and also with my cabinet maker to explain all the techniques of Sornet, like the brass nails. It's a patent in 1932, and also the work uh, of Oregon Pine. He, he buy Oregon in, in Oregon in USA in 1930, and uh, he worked Oregon like a little Ellen Gray and also Pierre Legrand. And uh, it's, Sonnet is very typical, very typical in Art Deco furniture. And I, I love the Sonnet furniture. <laughs> and in my house near Lyon, I have only Sonnet furniture. Ah, all okay. the furniture. Really? All of it? Sonnet. I live in, with Sonnet furniture. My bed, my dining table, my sofa, my armchair, all is Sonnet. What is it like to live with uh, his pieces? My wife is uh, Dutch. She don't like at the beginning. <laughs> of, <laughs> she don't like Sonnet at the beginning. And now she loves also. And uh, I have two daughters who... We live in uh, Paris, and uh, in the, the apartment, they have only Sony furniture. So this, this is three types of Sony furniture. It depends on the period of the production. And because they have a long life, 90 years, 98 years old, and uh, 60, 60 years of production. And it makes three, three types different production. The production between 1919 at the beginning uh, until 1932, it's very typical from uh, like uh, Charot, very strong, strong type of uh, furniture. After the patent of 1932, you have the nails of all the furniture. And after the Second War, uh, it's, it's coming very different with uh, color, like a little Perrion and Prouvé. And uh, he worked also for, uh, for, um, for industry and uh, for collectivity. Those three types of furniture. And the three types is very different, but always, always the design is perfect. 
And on the cover of the book that you wrote about uh, Alain Marchepal and uh, sorry about Andre Sornet, um, is this one of the armchairs that you are presenting here at TAFE? Yes. Alors, on the TAFEF, I present two armchairs. Very typical armchair. It's the cover of my book because this model of armchair Sornet used is in own desk in Lyon and it presents his own desk at the big exposition at Paris in 1937 with the two armchairs, exactly the same model. So it's a typical form of Sornet and a, a mythic uh, armchair of Sornet because Sornet, when he works every day, he sits on this chair. Uh, so it was his own chair, yes, not exactly. just the one that he showed at the exposition, but the one that he sat on himself. E exactly. And how would how do you describe uh, to the people who maybe not have seen the chair yet? How do you describe the chair? The chair is, uh, is uh, 1937, and it's the creativity of the chair is the modernity, and the feet is like the plane, and the arm of the chair is like a boat. So it's the modernity, the uh, the, the speed. It has a very sort of aggressive yes, exactly. kind of yeah. And what is the materials that he the used? The material is uh, mahogany with brass nails, and the arms is uh, brass. And did he use brass a lot in his yes, career? Yes, a lot, uh, a lot. He, he used brass a lot. Why, why is that? Uh, because he, he liked techniques, and uh, the brass nails is also patent in 1932, and he used uh, brass nails for this patent with wood, with a lot of a lot of type of woods, all the wood, uh, rosewood, uh, oak, uh, mahogany, and uh, all the woods. And what are some of the other pieces that you're from uh, Andre Sornet that you're that you're showing at the TAFE off? On the on the booth, there, there are a lot of pieces of uh, Sornet. There are two two armchairs, and also a very nice uh, dining table. 1937 in uh, rosewood with brass nails and uh, solid mahogany with uh, eight original chairs for this table. And this table is, uh, I think, the best table uh, of Sarnay I know. There is also a very nice uh, console before the nails, 1927, trapezoidal form with two stone of uh, Belgium, Swanee uh, stone. A very, very nice uh, model, unique piece also. A lot of things are very interesting in my booth. And, and you've been collecting Sornet for, for a long time, and he passed. He was very old when he passed away. Did you ever get to meet him? No, I never meet him because he's, uh, when I, I begin, he's old. And he don't want to speak with uh, the market. Ah, okay. But I speak with uh, his daughter. And uh, with his author, uh, I wrote the, the book with all the drawing of uh, Sornet. She she she, she gave me. And was he a nice? I mean, was he uh, was he very a nice person? Was he very you know serious man? Or is... I, I think he's not very communicative man. He always uh, spend his time to draw furniture. What was the last piece he made? What, how old was he when he was still designing? <laughs> Maybe uh, 85 years. Oh, wow. Old. Okay. Yeah. 
but only uh, furniture for collectivity at the at the end. And he worked with uh, his his son and uh, his two uh, um, daughters. And what has the reaction been like here at at Tefaf has with uh, people coming into the booth? Ah, the people like. Generally, they don't know, <laughs> but uh, they like uh, very much uh, this kind of uh, work. It's uh, strange, but they like Art Deco furniture. But it's not the Art Deco, classic Art Deco like Ruhlman, like Prince. It's very modern, and I think uh, for German people, for uh, Dutch people, they like this uh, line. The line of Sony. Like in USA, in New York, because New York is a Art Deco f- town. And if you had to describe uh, Mr. Sornet in, in three words, his work, how would, what, what three words would you use to, to describe him? I think the first is uh, technique, modernity, and uh, quality. Technique, modernity, and quality. Next up, we go from the purely functional to the mostly decorative. A silver trophy of a cockerel, or a young rooster. About six inches tall and made in 1601 as a prize for a shooting contest. But it's not just a little figurine, but a cup fit for a prince. It's shown here by Gallery Kugel. I spoke with Laura Kugel, a sixth-generation dealer in her family's business based in Paris, about this gorgeous curiosity. Okay, my name is Laura Kugel. We're from Gallery Kugel in Paris. We're a family-run business uh, of uh, about six generations, and we're long-time exhibitors at TEFAF, and I'm uh, associate director at the gallery and member of the board of trustees of the fair. So how many years is... Uh, it's your family's gallery, correct? And how many years has the, the family been um, has been showing at TEFAF? I think we're, we've been showing for almost uh, 30 or 32 years at TEFAF. It's something that my uh, grandfather used to do before it was actually called TEFAF. And when there was a, only a small antiques fair in Maastricht, when this area was still uh, a field and uh, nothing was built yet. So for us, it's always been a really important uh, event throughout the year. And we spend the most part of the year, or at least six months planning for it. We never reveal uh, our highlights ahead of time, so we want complete surprise for our visitors, uh, private clients and museums and art amateurs. And what does tape off mean to you? Because you show internationally, and so what does this particular fair mean to you? Uh, for me, the unique uh, aspect of this fair is really the multidisciplinary uh, feature. I don't think there's anything quite like it. So you can really walk around the aisles and go from design to modern to ancient to old masters. Um, we're part of the antiquaire section, which is largely works of art, so a very broad uh name to encompass all kinds of disciplines and objects from the Middle Ages to the 19th century. And there's about uh, 220 of us this year, dealers, and it's a kind of special summer edition that's slightly smaller than the typical 280 dealers edition. So it's really fantastic. And the best part of it is that uh, the visitors most often come with one thing in mind or they collect one specific thing, but they visit all the booths and they always discover new things. And so we have amazing conversations, incredible meetings, and we always uh, learn from new projects, new exhibitions. So it's not only a marketplace, but uh, a venue where we exchange ideas and it's uh, super stimulating for, for all of us. 
And how do you describe your, your gallery and the specialty of the gallery? So we're antiques dealers uh, with a wide array of specialties. I would call us generalists, which is something dear to our heart because we don't really want to uh, close off uh, ourselves to one discipline or another. And typically we present works that can go from an archaeology piece all the way to a mid-19th century sculpture. Um, and as Every year at TEFAF, we try to bring a little bit of everything at the fair uh, to showcase the wide array of, uh, of works that one can find back in our gallery in Paris. So today we're, we're speaking about uh, this, uh, we would say a cockerel or like a, like a hen, I guess, um, shaped cup. Can, can you tell me a little bit about it? Yes. So one of our specialties at the gallery is um, sort of Central European silver and kind of this Kunstkammer type of objects. So when you talk about silver in those years, it can be uh, obviously cutlery and, you know, table services. But what I really mean are mounted cups and objects that are much more for cabinets of curiosities or princely treasures akin to what you might find in the great museums in, in Vienna or in, in other other great European cities. And uh, this object you're referring to is a about 20 centimeters tall uh, figure of a cockerel where the head can separate from the body, but they're cleverly attached by a chain, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> so the head is essentially the cap to exactly. this cup. So they were... They were called drinking cups, even though we don't know how much they were used. And this cup in particular has a very helpful inscription at the bottom that explains to us uh, what its usage was. And it was, as you said, uh, awarded as the first prize of a shooting tournament in 1601. We even know the name of the recipient, so it means it was engraved after he won, right? Ah, right after the okay. tournament. And so it's a trophy in a sense. So it is a trophy, but you have to imagine that to have a silver cup as a trophy, it means that it's a really important tournament because these were by no means uh, objects available to any aristocrat. They were really, have to, you have to think that they were really meant for, for princely collections. And we know that this was awarded for a tournament held in honor of the reconquest of a town in Hungary that was previously an Ottoman-held territory and that one general of the imperial uh, army reclaimed at this time, and the festival was organized in honor of this event. So it was a big deal, and probably uh, very illustrious members of the court attended. So it was not like a little thing of sight. Um, and the cup attests to the kind of luxurious and opulent event that you, obviously, when you reclaim a town from your sworn enemy, you know, it's uh, an event to celebrate. And what do we know about uh, the person who made it? So with, uh, with silver of that time, something that's fascinating is that there's a very thorough hallmarking system, which means that for most pieces, we're able to know uh, where the piece was made, sometimes the exact date in a one, two or three year period, and the name of the silversmith. In this case, he's called George Borat. Um, I don't know that much about him, and he's from uh, the, now the Czech Republic, so more of the Bohemia area. But we are able to find his name and to find exactly the dating of, of the cup. And that's something that I, I love about this kind of discipline because today we are so fascinated and obsessed with the individual who created a piece. Sometimes when you deal with older art, you have to mention a workshop or you know a, a variety of artists and it's really difficult to pinpoint who is the actual author of a piece. But with this one, I'm able to tell you, he might be a complete... Uh, completely unknown, but at least we know uh, we know his name. 
And how do you describe the people that collect, uh, that come to your gallery, that collect this type of work? A lot of the people who like this type of works have um, what I call a horizontal view on collecting. So they often have this cabinet of curiosity mentality where they want a little bit of everything of different techniques. Um, so this would fit in to represent, you know, the, the Renaissance uh, imperial kind of workmanship. So um, we also have silver collectors um, and these cups you can find under various typologies a lot of different animals and the cockerel is actually quite rare we found one other piece of the same model in the british museum but um, it's not something that common which adds to its uh, rarity and to give you an example for another shooting tournament that was held around the same time uh, under the rule of the same emperor the first prize was apparently a pig a silver cup in the shape of a pig where the head again dissociated so um, the more uncommon animals are sometimes hard to find so we're very happy we, we came across this one and the cup has a name too it's uh or it is here in my the uh, Schutzenfest Prize. Schutzenfest Prize. I think that okay. literally translates as Sh a shooting, shooting tournament <laughs> prize. Uh, it's exactly what you think it would be. Um, and so in your, it, you, you know, the, the shape of, uh, you know, sort of like of a rooster is somewhat rare, but like, have you come across similar, these kinds of prizes before? Yes. Uh, sometimes it ha it's hard to know if they're intended as prizes or not. They can be intended as wedding gifts, uh, diplomatic presents, honorary gifts. Um, but uh, you have a variety of animals from, let's say, less rare ones, which can be uh, lions, for instance. And then you also it, it can go all the way to bears and stags and unicorns. So there's a whole kind of... Uh, uh, there's a whole kind of array of animals being depicted. Um, we also have some collectors who wish to have one of each typology, you know, so maybe someone will come and snatch the cockerel. It's attracting uh, quite a lot of attention, both from privates and from museums. It's a, it's a wonderful piece. It's, a, it's small, so it has this precious aspect. You know, you don't really know if it's a silver work or an object or maybe almost some kind of a jewel in a sense. And it's, it's pure silver. And some of it looks, you know, gold and some of it looks silver. Can you explain that technique? Um, I think it's parcel gilt. Yes. Silver? So it's, uh, it's silver and silver gilt, uh, which obviously silver gilt would, would be rarer. Um, and here the gilding is used to differentiate between the feathers, which are uh, silver, and uh, the skin of the animal of the cockerel, which is rendered in, in silver gilt. So to, to explain to your listeners who, who don't have the objects in front of their eyes, the paws of the of the bird are silver gilt so is his face and his beak and his little tongue but all the rest the feathers are gray like beautifully beautifully rendered and chased and you also mentioned that uh, i think when i had seen it at the booth that the tongue moves yes so the tongue is held only by a tiny hinge which means that if you jiggle the cup which i guess you might if you're drinking from it it moves up and down which is somehow whimsical and these objects often have a little touch of humor which is also something nice because when you can laugh at something that was made three four five hundred years ago uh, that's somehow amazing and what is the you know you mentioned a little bit about you know who is coming in and, and seeing it 
Um, what is the has it, has it been sold yet? It's not sold yet. It's the type of work for which we have many prospective buyers, and we have no idea if it will go to a private or to an institution. If it doesn't ha happen to sell at TFAF, it will go back to the gallery alongside uh, much more pieces, such as this one that we that we have over there. And it's uh, a kind of uh, work that would be priced in the sort of low six figures, but uh, Kunstkammer silverworks of this time can go as high as you know, multiple millions. The market is very wide and there are true amateurs for this type of pieces. And when you have fun stories or interesting provenances associated, like this one for which we know when it was awarded, um, that only adds to the value. And it also seems like something that you would only find at Tefaf. Yes, TFAF is definitely the venue for these types of works of art, and it's the place where we are completely confident that we might sell it to someone who's perhaps never collected these pieces before, simply because this fair has such a reputation for excellent objects that people feel confident to buy uh, when they come here. Ethnographic art is a major part of the art world represented at TFAF. And there's no better expert to speak with on the subject than Brussels-based antique dealer Bernard de Grun. His wooden statuette, made by the Bari people in South Sudan in the mid-19th century, is both rare and unusual for the market in many ways. I wanted to ask Bernard about why this particularly alluring piece stands out to him, and how the pandemic has changed the market for African art. Tell me a little bit about your gallery, and where you're based, and, and what your specialty is. I've opened my first gallery in Brussels in 1995, after you know 14 years in the U.S., I was based first in the Sablon area, which is a, uh, as you know, in Brussels, at the time was the center of activity for antiquities market. And about 10 years ago, I moved to a kind of a chicer avenue called Avenue Franklin Roosevelt, which is where all the embassies are. And I have a, a house there, which is a two, two facade, 1935 Art Deco house, which is my gallery now since 12 years, something like that. And what is the specialty of your, your gallery? I've published a lot. I'm more, I come from the academic side. So my first publication ever in 79 was on uh, Art Papou, Papuan art from uh, New Guinea. Since then, I've published a lot on African art. So my gallery specialized mainly in classical African art from West, Central, and Southern Africa. Also oceanic art, if I can find some interesting material. And also, which is unusual, Indonesian tribal art, which is, you know, the arts of Borneo, Sumatra, the lesser Moluccan Islands, uh, the Philippines, which I found quite fascinating, which is kind of a niche within the niche, but is a quite a, a special in, a market in which I think it has a future. I didn't realize that Indonesia is building a new capital in Borneo. I don't know if you knew that. They're going to build a brand, Jakarta is clogged. It cannot expand. So they're building this brand new city. In Borneo, in Borneo are some of the oldest art styles of, 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 of uh, Asia. We have wooden pieces in Borneo which go back to 3,000 years, 4,000 years. So Borneo is a very fascinating culture. And that's always, being an art historian by training, I've always been attracted by that. And what does attract you do to you know, ethnographic art of this type? I was lucky to, my father who was in politics, happened to become a collector of tribal art in the s late 60s, 70s, and 80s. He lived in Brussels. He worked, you know, he ran an administration, but he was lucky enough to be able to buy, arriving in Brussels when they were all coming out of Central and West Africa, 
great art styles, which were discovered, whether it's Nigeria, Cameroon, Mali, Congo, etc. So I grew up really surrounded by great art without really knowing it because I was 14, 15. So I think it trained my eye, just like if you grew up in a family of musicians, you train your ear. So that, that made me sort of look at sculpture more than paintings. So when I started, when I went to university, I decided to study archaeology and art history. And I specialized in African art because I really like sculpture. And sculpture is, you know, a endless pursuit of discoveries and forms. And it's less studied in a way than his painting. So I think you can still, if you're an art historian by training, you can still contribute to knowledge of these times in a, in a way which, if you want to be a special on Raphael, I mean, Raphael has been studied so much, or Leonardo, or Bruegel, or Vermeer. So sculpture is kind of a, and that's how I sort of stayed with African art and sculpture from uh, non-Western cultures, really. And how would you describe the the market at the moment in this sort of new period that we're in for for African art specifically? Well, the two, I mean, there's a, the two, as as we all know, the two events which kind of influenced the market in a certain way. One was, of course, uh, for everybody, the entire plan was COVID, and that kind of slowed, I mean, canceled affairs. So the market kind of continued because people were still interested in buying, but really remotely. So the market didn't die, but it's kind of slowed down a bit. Now, the other aspect is the big debate about restitution, you know, and giving back and giving back what's been stolen and proving what's been stolen, which is a complex issue. And that has also kind of made things a bit more, forces dealers to be more focused on when they do research on provenance and history of objects. I think at the end of the day, once it's all settled, we'll find out that 98 or 99% of the works, whether it's in museums or private collections, will were actually legitimately purchased or exchanged and very little was actually stolen the way we read about them in the media because physically it was impossible but that sort of also had an impact in terms of well you know what about if we have to give it all back to Africa which in a way Africa is not demanding but I think you know very vocal minorities in Europe of African descent are demanding so this is a discourse which is interesting uh, I think everybody has to dialogue and talk. And I don't know if you follow the news lately. Uh, king Philip of Belgium flew back. He went to Congo for the first time as the king of Belgium with his wife, Reine Mathilde. And they, you know, brought back one mass from the Africa Museum, which is on long-term loan. But if you talk to people from Congo, I mean, they're much more interested in collaboration, formation, education, than just getting back 20,000 masks, which is not going to change anything to their life. I think they want, we want, what they want is basically uh, hoping to form curators, conservators, field researchers. So that dialogue, which has been going on for a few years, has to sort of go on and be, uh, uh, we have to listen to both both sides and try and find solutions which make everybody, you know, more calm about it. And this brings us to the the piece that you are showing right. here at Tafoff. Can you describe this statuette and, and 
um, to someone who, can, if they're listening right now and they haven't been able to look at it yet online, what, what describe it for okay, us? Okay, well, it's, this, this statuette comes from the Bari tribe, which is in southern Sudan, which are part of these Nilotic groups from, from that region, from eastern Africa. It's part of a corpus which is fairly small, I think. There's a, a, a Italian scholar called Castelli who did a very in-depth article on these statues. He found about 45 in museums. They were all collected between 1848 and 1880, uh, brought by, mainly in Khartoum and around there, and brought back to Cairo and then given to the museums. There's a very strong collection in Vienna. There's one in St. Petersburg Museum. Ethnography Museum, and there's five in the Musée du Quai which was from the Musée de l'Homme. And they're a very unusual style for African art. The so-called African proportions of, you know, like two-thirds between the head and the torso and the legs has kind of been turned around. And the longest, I mean, the statue is about, what, 45 centimeters, and the legs are half of the height of the statue. So instead of having shorter legs and a bigger torso and a large head, the legs are the most important part, and then you have a torso which is a third, and then the head which is very small, which is very fascinating in terms of, you know, what William Fagg, the former curator of the British Museum, said was the golden African proportions, which you see generally in African art. Uh, as a group of objects, uh, they were probably used by priests who were called rainmakers. So they were really used in ceremonies for... Uh, Basically, you know, Sudan, if you look today, I mean, it's all cattle. Cattle, you know, they need to eat some, you know, what's on the ground. So what's on the ground to only grow if there's water. If there's no water, they just die. So rain was very important in those cultures since thousands of years. And this Bari style, which is fairly simple, is fairly geometric with very short arms, very long legs, and this small head, which is almost kind of a monkey type of ob style, for me personally, reminds me of somehow the archetypes of sculpture. It's a half-human, half-animal figure, which is a deity at the same time, has a sort of deep-set eyes, a little small forehead, and it's really, you feel you're just, peeking into prehistory, you know. It's not a very old piece. It was, you know, these are all between, dated between 1800 and 1850. So this is not, we're not talking about something which is like a prehistoric Venus 20,000 years ago, but the style makes you push back to the most, not primitive, the most archaic way of representing a human body. And that's what I found fascinating with this Barry statue. If, I don't know if this is, understandable for the somebody who's listening but it's once you see it you understand what i'm saying and yeah because it also has uh very sort of short yeah, exactly. arms that are yeah. clearly yeah. uh they're almost like half yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the, the purpose of these arms are fascinating because it's it's like or somebody who had a disease or somebody whose arms were shortened or their animals the paws almost so there's this very Subtle ambiguity, which you find a lot in African art, where you have human elements and then animal elements and then elements from the world of spirits, all put together in one statue, and which actually, once you look at the object, it all makes sense. The short arms are kind of weird. The teeny head is kind of completely 
bizarre in terms of proportion, but it works. Once you see the piece, you don't feel, well, this is weird and it's like, you know, it kind of functions. So it shows that there was a tradition which is probably quite ancient. Of course, I don't want to sort of relate to Egypt, but, you know, Sudan and Egypt has at least five or 6,000 years of connection for a very long time. So there are things there which needs to be, you know, analyzed. Of course, this is art history and formal iconography, which is not as scientific as archaeology, but it's, I think, as, uh, just as interesting. It, from what you have, you know, ha what, from what pieces that have passed through your gallery, is this sort of a rare piece for you? Or Oh, yeah, it's the first one. You know, out of the corpus of, let's say, 54, I think there are about five in private hands. They're mainly all in public institutions, all collected in the between 1850 and 1900, so very early collection date, because the majority of the pieces in museums, whether it's the British Museum, the Musée du Quai Branly, Berlin, I mean, they're all, basically, the acquisition dates are 1880 to 1910. And these were, you know, 20, 30 years earlier, which is very interesting. And a style which was never really studied at all because it's such a small group. And, you know, they've carved them for those sort of very specific rituals of which we have very few explanations, but I find them fascinating. And what do we know about the, the people that, you know, the culture that it comes from? Well, the Bari, the Shiluk, and the Dinka are all these very interesting Nilotic cultures which basically... Uh, followed their cattle around and they would just need to find grazing grounds throughout the, the cycles of the seasons. And they were, as they were nomadic, they didn't really have much sculpture because, you know, they had to carry everything themselves, whether it's on, you know, with the cattle or, or, or the wife or whoever was carrying or the children. So the sculptural art style are just almost inexistent. So to have this, and obviously it's a coherent stylistic group. Obviously there was a tradition between 1800 and 1850 to carve a specific type of object for a ritual of which we think it's rainmaking, but we're not sure. And ha having one was, for me, you know, quite exciting because you never see those. It's kind of, it's like you have, you know, Leonardo painting. I mean, you, you all know them. They're all in museums. How can you, you know, put your hands on one? It's kind of fascinating. And this is, as interesting in a way. And how did it come? How do you, what do you know about the provenance since it was made? Provenance is kind of interesting. It belonged to a very famous, the most famous French dealer uh, in Paris between 1925 and 1970 called Charles Raton. Uh, he died, I think, in 1986. And he had a great eye, dealt in everything, you know, what he called Eau d'Epoque, which is antiquities, medieval, uh, Greek and Roman, of course. African, Oceanic, he worked to Suez. He was a very interesting character. And he, he just had a great eye and he would just buy anything he found of quality. We don't know. I, I looked in the archives of the Raton Gallery. We could not find a date of when this was purchased or from whom. It's been in the, you know, in the Raton's possession probably before the war. I would say in the thir late 30s, early 40s. And I, uh, I got it from the heirs of the, of the gallery a few years ago. You know, and I've, that's about it. So we have Charles Raton, let's say, in 1950s or earlier. That's about it. And obviously before that, because it's one of the few, if you look at the corpus, the majority of them which are in museums have no 
ritual wear, no surface, no, it looked like they were brand new when they were collected. And this one, if you look and you know, this is our job as, as dealers, you see there is a very rich, deep, dark red patina all over the piece. So obviously this is a piece which was anointed, worshipped, taken care of. So it had, when it came back from southern Sudan, whenever that was, between 1850 and 1900, it had already a, a nice history behind it. And uh, what has the reaction been like here at the fair to the piece? Some people don't even look at it. And then quite a few people, but I put it at the front of my booth, were kind of intrigued. And because there's a small head and this kind of overhanging forehead with these deep set eyes, with these little kind of wooden pegs inside, people kind of fascinated and say, what's going on? So they, it certainly attracted, you know, the eye of quite a few people. Uh, I think it's something they've never seen, so they don't really know how to compare it to anything else. I mean, you know, if I show a Congo maternity or a Fang figure, people, well, yeah, I've seen that before, or a Koda. This is just something new, and I think it kind of grabs the attention of people who probably have an eye who find, well, this is very unusual. Never seen that before, which is what Maastricht is about, you know, bringing things which are not your run-of-the-mill whatever. For my last selected piece, I've saved the most grand for last. Sold by the legendary gallery Kolnagi at Tefoff is a nearly 10-foot-long painting called The Triumph of Galatea by Luca Giordano, created sometime around 1675. The painting resurfaced on the market from a private collection in Venice and features a heroine in a dramatic scene surrounded by angels and other mythic characters. Speaking with me today is Professor Jeremy Howard, Director of Research, Archives, and Academic Projects at the gallery, and who also teaches at the University of Buckingham. So tell me a little bit about uh, Kolnagi. It's one of the oldest commercial galleries uh, in the world, I believe. Yes, it started up actually in Paris, um, and it wasn't an art dealership initially at all. It was a a place which sold scientific instruments, and uh, the person who um, was in charge of the gallery, who was a man called uh, Giambattista Torre, uh, specialized in fireworks, and he put on some very important uh, firework displays, both in France and in England. So he did, for example, the firework display to uh, commemorate the engagement of uh, the Dauphin, the future Louis XVI, to Marie Antoinette. And he also did some fireworks for, for King George III's birthday party and various other things in London. Um, the uh, gallery then started to get into art rather gradually. So um, Giambattista Torre's son, Antonio, uh, went off to start up a, a, a gallery in London, and there he was joined by Paul Colnaghi. Okay, so then Paul Colnaghi, who in fact was a lawyer from Milan, was taken into the business and helped out Antonio Torre. They were co-directors of the London Gallery, and they had a, a very good business uh, selling prints uh, after Reynolds, Gainsborough, portraits of society beauties, effectively, to the French market. And they also uh, exported English barometers to France. So really, the business was based in Paris initially, but with an offshoot in London. Well, with the outbreak of the French Revolution, of course, the business moves to London. And uh, Paul Colnaghi quickly becomes the sole proprietor of the business. And during the 
Regency period, he's given a royal warrant and sells literally thousands of prints to the Prince Regent, the future George IV. And for most of the 19th century, the gallery's business was based around print selling. <clears throat> but towards the end of the 19th century, they start to move big time into old masters. And this is the really exciting period of the gallery uh, as far as paintings are concerned, because between 1894 and the Second World War, Colnaghi sold pictures to some of the great American collectors, beginning with Isabella Stuart Gardner, then Henry Clay Frick, and then Andrew Mellon, and in fact participated in what is probably the biggest art deal, certainly as far as old masters are concerned, of the 20th century, which was the sale of a very important collection of paintings which were secretly sold off by the Soviets, came from the Hermitage, and were sold mainly to Andrew Mellon by Colnaghi and their American partners, Nerdler. And how long has uh, uh, Colnaghi been showing at TAFE off? More or less since it began, I think. Um, I can't say precisely when we started, but we've certainly been at TAFE for the last 40 years. So, yes. And what always. is the business like today? Um, I think the... The business has diversified a lot. It was, you know, originally started up very much focusing on, on, you know, the Dutch dealers dealing in 17th century Dutch pictures. Um, contemporary art was, was not a feature at all, uh, of the fair 40 years ago. Um, and decorative arts were not also, were also not as important as they became. Um, to a certain extent, I think the fair has contracted again, uh, in the wake of the pandemic. But I think the quality is still very high and I think it still remains the most important fair in the world for selling older art. And by that, I mean not just flat art, but also um, three-dimensional objects as well. And how many pieces have you brought to TFF uh, this time? Um, trying to think. About 20, um, yeah. And uh, uh, they include some really major pictures. Um, which uh, and we're very pleased with the um, with the sales we've had so far. Um, several museum uh, sales, um, and uh, um, you know we're, we're we're delighted that the response has been very very warm actually from uh, from clients this year. Um, you know we we obviously were afraid about what was going to happen exactly after the opening up after the pandemic, but I think people have been so. Uh, pleased to be back actually looking at things again and, and meeting real people rather than trying to do it all online, that, that uh, there's, been a, there's been a great sort of enthusiasm, I would say, in the fair. And, you know, towering over some of the works uh, at your booth is this immense uh, painting, uh, The Triumph of uh, Galatea. And can you tell me a little bit about, it was recently discovered, can you tell me a little bit about this painting? Yes, it's actually, it's one of four versions. Uh, two of them are in museum collections. So the uh, one of them is, which we know is dated from, uh, we can date it fairly precisely to around 1674, 1675, is uh, in the Pitti Palace uh, collection. Uh, there's also one in the Hermitage uh, there is a third in the Duke of Devonshire's collection in Chatsworth, and then ours is the fourth. The uh, painting at Chatsworth is probably closest to our picture in that it actually shows the triumph of Galatea, 
very much focusing on the triumphal moment, uh, whereas the other two versions show the rather tragic scene of the parting of Asus and Galatea as Asus is transformed into a river and starts to sprout um, uh, bulrushes and things. Um, so ours, the, 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 the tone, I think, is much more triumphant and, and joyous, really. And the, the painting, the style of the painting is, is amazing in the sense that it looks forward, really, to the Rococo, but it's painted in the 1670s. Uh, it's an enormous picture, as you will have seen, and it has a magnificent frame, which we believe probably was round the picture when Luca Giordano painted it. It's uh, a Venetian frame of the late 17th century in the manner of the great Venetian carver Andrea Brustalon. And what what can you tell listeners about um, Luca Giordano that painted it? Like, who was he? Oh, well, he was from Naples, but he worked quite widely uh, in Europe. I mean, he ended up his career working in Spain. Uh, he was particularly well known for his extraordinary facility uh, and the speed with which he painted pictures, which gave rise to the nickname Fa Presto, the person who, who does everything very quickly. The early works by uh, Luca Giordano uh, are very different in character to our Triumph of Galatea in the sense that they're much more somber uh, they have a gritty realism about them, which reflects the influence of the great Spanish artist working in Naples, Giuseppe Ribera. And then Luca Giordano's uh, style changes, and towards the end of his career, and this picture is very much a mature work, he is moving in a much more, um, uh, as I said, sort of light-hearted direction, I would say, influenced by Pietro da Cortona, whose work he saw in Florence, and painting uh, with extraordinary bravura um, and a great sense of wit, I think, as well. I mean, the uh, the dolphins are just uh, wonderful uh, creatures, um, and uh, I think he enjoys the uh, the really kind of pointing up the difference between the beautiful Galatea, who is being borne by these dolphins and mermaids and mermen, uh, and the the awful figure of the the one eyed giant Polyphemus, who has uh, killed her lover, but uh, is, is finally defeated, really, because of the uh, metamorphosis of Asus into a river. Uh, so it is a triumphant moment, uh, as celebrated in Ovid's poem. And when you said that there are four different versions, were they all made at the same time, or? They, three out, three out of the four, as far as we know, uh, were commissioned in the 1670s. The, the the one which is at Chatsworth is generally believed to be the, the, the last of the in the series, uh, painted in the 1680s. And rather interestingly, because I know your series about the Grand Tour, uh, Lord Burlington, the great architect who really uh, launched the Palladian movement in England in the 18th century and went on two Grand Tours, bought the picture when he was traveling in Paris and brought it back to London and it was uh, hung for a time at Chiswick Villa, which is really quite a small building. It's the sort of uh, version of the Villa Rotonda. Uh, but when you look at the size of the picture, it must have really seemed quite large in the, in the space. And it's now at Chatsworth because uh, Lord Burlington didn't have any male heirs. So um, 
the the picture descended through uh, one of his daughters who married into the Devonshire family. Ah, I see. Okay. And are all four of them uh, this large? Uh, They're pretty much the same size, yes. Yes. And do we know anything about the person who originally commissioned them? No, we don't. But uh, very likely to have been a Venetian uh, patron. Um, We know that in the 1670s, Luca Giordano was based in Naples, but he was sending a lot of pictures, particularly to Florence and to Venice. So he had a big market outside Naples. So anybody, the person who commissioned them, commissioned all four at the same time? No, no, no. no, uh, We know that the the picture in Florence was commissioned by a Florentine nobleman and was then acquired by the Medici. And I'm... uh, so they were all separate commissions, effectively. We don't, unfortunately, know the name of the Venetian uh, who almost certainly commissioned the version which we have on our stand. And what would you say, you know, it was painted around 1675, correct? You know, what would you say, how would you characterize that moment in art history? Um, well, I think it is a, a transitional moment towards the end of the Baroque, when things are beginning to become a little bit more lighthearted. Now, in France and in England, we have what we call the Rococo style, and there is a decisive break, really, in what's going on. Uh, France, of course, it's very much ties in with the movement of the court back from Versailles, the death of Louis XIV, and a new lighthearted mood that sets in, really, from the 1720s onwards. In Italy, it's a little bit more complicated. They don't actually talk about the Rococo. They talk about the Barocchetto. And really, it's the Baroque style, but it's the Baroque style handled with a lighter touch. And we can see that in Luca Giordano's uh, canvases, but also in the amazing ceiling which he paints in the 1680s for the Medici, which is in the Palazzo Medici Riccardi which many people go to to, in order to see the famous Gotzili frescoes and they never go up to the top of the building. But if they do make the effort to climb the stairs, uh, they will be richly rewarded because it's it's a wonderfully exuberant ceiling. And, you know, you were mentioning the the myth and and everything that goes into this great uh, painting and the story that it tells. But there's also this... uh, little character on the top of a hill up in the upper right corner. Yes. Do, who, who would that be? Well, I think it's a little bit ambiguous, but uh, because both uh, Polyphemus and Asis uh, were shepherds, uh, so it could be either. But I think given the scale of the figure, he really is quite large given where he is. I think we must be looking at uh, Polyphemus. Um, and Polyphemus was this one-eyed giant who uh, was in love with the beautiful uh, nymph Galatea and was enraged when he found uh, Asis and Galatea uh, in an amorous clinch and then proceeded to, to pick up a huge rock and throw it at Asis and, and this is how Asis dies. Uh, but fortunately, while Asis is dying, he, he gets turned into to a river. Ah, okay. And what, what do you think, of, what is it about this story in particular that maybe made it the 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 choice for it to be this you know tale to be commissioned at the time i don't really know why this particular story seems to have had so much resonance for 
Luca Giordano, but he does actually paint several versions, not just the four main pictures that I've talked about, but there are other moments in the story which he represents in other paintings. But certainly Ovid was enormously, in, really, uh, the probably the greatest source for these sort of mythological paintings from the time of Titian onwards. And the uh, the metamorphoses were were mined really for for ideas by by artists and were tr- were tremendously popular with patrons as well. And you know, uh, one of my questions is when you're visiting an affair like Tefaf, um, unlike you know a contemporary art fair, obviously there's always these you know dis- quote unquote discoveries, right? Things that have just not been on the market for as long as anyone can remember, or they they didn't even, they are not recorded by whoever was recording. Um, or documenting a certain artist, and they're they're kind of coming out of nowhere in, in a sense. Are you know? Do you think now in this new era, you know, in 2022, people can share imagery so much easier than even just 10 years ago? Are there still a lot of works out there in that would interest a gallery like Colnaghi of that level that are still undiscovered? Well, miraculously, there are, yes. And of course, people only know about the images if the images have been published somewhere or somebody's taken a photograph of them. A lot of private collectors are very private in what they hold. And therefore, uh, unless you kind of have the contacts and the entree into these private collections, you probably don't know the great riches which are still out there and which are still available to come onto the market. And what's the reaction been like to this particular painting? We've had a lot of interest in it, certainly. We've had a lot of interest. Definitely need um, so. a large home to, a large living room to. Yes, I mean, either somebody with a, with a large uh, palazzo, which is, of course, where the picture comes from, um, or uh, a museum. I think it's got, there's so much going on in this picture that it uh, uh, would work very well in a museum in the sense that it's a, it, there's a lot to talk about. And I think museum directors are always thinking about, um, you know, what are the talking points going to be? Um, how is this going to appeal to, to, to our audiences? And I can see this having a very wide appeal. Thank you to all of the dealers and galleries, and especially Mark Rosen, Magda Gregorian, and Lauren Kasten for making this episode happen. For more information about the fair, visit tafeoff.com. That's T-E-F-A-F dot com. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time, 